Hey guys, it's Alana and Jacqueline. And you're back for another episode of Black and Yellow. Welcome back, lovely listeners, to another episode of the show for another deep dive into wellness. Make sure you have your gear on. All this month, we are tackling the theme of wellness. And this episode, we are talking cultural appropriation and fitness. If there is one form of wellness that ticks the box of being Fitness or exercise definitely has roots in spirituality and may even be considered its own for form of religious practice. And it's profitable as hell. <laughs> it's yoga. Yup. I don't think we can talk about wellness without talking about yoga because it's one of those ubiquitous activities that seems to be a cure for a lot of life's physical, spiritual, and emotional ailments. Yeah, I mean, think about how many times you've heard people mention starting doing yoga during times of change in their life. Statements like, I wanted to get healthy, so I started eating healthier, working out, and doing yoga. Or, I got sober, and part of my recovery is going to meetings and doing yoga. Or, I needed to maintain the stress in my life, so I started meditating and doing yoga. Like, seriously, yoga and wellness go together like peanut butter and jelly, and it makes a lot of sense as to why. It's got great physical benefits and is a form of exercise that people of all ages can do. It has a strong message of body positivity and acceptance. It has mind-clearing, centering, calming effects, which are great for our mental health and stability. It offers people an hour or so to just get out of their life, to transcend into another headspace before returning to their normal lives. It forces a connection between the breath and our body. And by the end, you're a blissed out puddle of goo ready to enter the world. Oh, yeah. I have definitely experienced that. <laughs> um, it, it also has a very intoxicating mystique that is hard to ignore and very easy to get swept up in. It is a foreign-born spiritual practice that feels like a welcome alternative to someone who's looking for a spiritual practice that is not of a typical religion. But I, it's also a practice that feels quite mysterious and esoteric. And just like Easterners have always had a fascination with the West, that pendulum swings the other way as Westerners have always had a fascination with the type of imagined version of a mystical East. Yeah, the type of mystical East that conjures up feelings of air thick with nag champa incense smoke and the soundtrack of a sitar constantly playing local songs and drenched in sunlight. You know, it's always golden hour and yeah. lots of gold and lots of brightly colored locals and brightly colored fabrics sort of a mm -hmm. thing. Definitely. And while yoga is popular, wildly popular in the U.S., it has a troubling history that is conveniently um, <laughs> often uh, forgotten about. Um, but the fact is that yoga that we know here in the States has roots in white supremacy and colonialism. Yeah, um, Shrina Gandhi and Lily Wolf wrote an article together called Yoga and the Roots of Cultural Appropriation, and they pretty much lay out the colonizing origins of yoga. They say, quote, the origins of yoga can be traced back to South Asia, a space colonized by the British and Portuguese. The reason why yoga became popular and why various Indian yogis started traveling to England and to the United States to, quote, sell yoga is also tied up in colonial 
colonialism. Yoga was often used as a tool to show the British that Indians were not backwards or primitive, but that their religion was specific, healthy, and rational. This was a position they were coerced into and unfortunately reified colonial forms of knowledge. That knowledge must be proven or scientific to be worth anything. So beyond its utility, yoga became popular in part because it reinforced European and Euro-American ideas of India. Early Indian yoga missionaries played on the Orientalist construction of, quote, the West as progressive and superior and the East as spiritual but inferior. Yoga became and remains a practice which allows Western practitioners to experience the idea of another culture while focusing on the self, end quote. They go into detail in the article about just how easy it is to profit off of yoga because yoga to build a business. Um, if you've got a yoga business, you can open a studio, make yoga clothing or accessories, have a yoga app, teach classes virtually or instruct privately, host retreats. Really, yoga sky's the limit. Um, sky is the yoga limit since... Oh, wait. What? <laughs> let me go. Let me take that again. They go into detail in the article about just how easy it is to profit off of yoga because of yoga to build a business. If you've got a yoga business, you can open a studio, make yoga clothing or accessories, have a yoga app, teach classes virtually or instruct privately, host retreats, and really, sky's the limit for the yoga experience. And because capitalism and colonialism have taken a hold of the yoga we do in the U.S., that also means that a lot of the culture of yoga has been stripped away as well. With that, it leaves us with this watered-down, whitewashed version of yoga that is welcoming to everyone and doesn't run the risk of making affluent white clients uncomfortable in the name of cultural understanding. Yeah, uh, another large quote from the article that I just mentioned uh, sort of does a really great job of laying out how yoga teachers teach yoga, but don't necessarily follow with Hindu traditions. So they say, quote, most yoga teachers in America do not learn about Hindu, tradi Hindu tradition or Indian cultural history. Generally, in the United States, people practice the physical aspect of yoga, the postures, which comprise only one eighth of the practice as a whole. The physical practice, think about uh, flowing from one pose to another with awareness of the breath, does help many people decrease stress, anxiety, and depression. However, when Western yoga teachers train other practitioners to relate to yoga only on a physical level without exploring the history, roots, complexity, and philosophy, they are perpetuating the recolonization of it by diluting the true depth of meaning. This modern day trend of cultural appropriation of yoga is a continuation of white supremacy and colonialism, maintaining the pattern of white people consuming the stuff of culture that is convenient and portable while ignoring the well-being and liberation of Indian people, end quote. Mm. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so today we have a great guest um, who is going to talk to us about how we can appreciate and not appropriate yoga. It is going to be a great interview. 
But before we get to talking to her, we're going to put our money where our mouth is. Yay, yay, yay. <laughs> um, and this, this is where we have a little segment about local, female-owned, Asian, black-owned businesses um, that we can support, that you can go out there and give them your dollars to make sure that their small businesses are running. It's a form of economic protest. We're not giving money to the big corporations we're doing our best to slowly inch away from the empire of jeff bezos um you know to really go and support <laughs> our our local businesses um so alana what you got so i think in keeping with our yoga theme of this episode uh i chose a black owned premium athleisure brand called Rome Loud at Rome Loud on Instagram. So wearing Rome Loud is an act of navigating the world boldly. And creator Toyin Omisore, I hope I pronounced that right. Love that name. I know, right? Wanted to launch a premium activewear brand that places black women at the forefront of the brand, as well as pay homage to her maternal grandmother who was from Liberia. And, you know, color, color coordinated dressing and dressing in sets is all the rage right now. And if you are into that aesthetic, Rome Loud has you covered. Rome Loud has some great athleisure sets in bright, bold colors and really fun prints that are flattering for all shapes and sizes. And a really hot athleisure catsuit, you know, if you want to work up a sweat while bringing those strong Serena Williams vibes. And the pieces are super affordable. There's no Lululemon price. Pricing here, which means you can actually buy more than one pair of leggings. What a concept. So if you're tired of wearing the same comfy clothes that you've been wearing since March and you want to treat yourself to some new comfy sets, some new some new threads uh, to get ready for the hibernation season up ahead, check out Rome Loud. RomeLoud.com. What you got, Jay? Awesome. So after your yoga class, you can head over to La Tropicana Market mm -hmm. in Highland Park for some kombucha or freshly squeezed juice or smoothies <laughs> or coffee. Um, so I wanted to highlight them because I love what they stand for. Um, it is a family-owned uh, neighborhood market. They're located at 5200 Monte Vista Street in Los Angeles, California. Um, so they are owned, um, so it's owned by Rana Cillian Redfield. I hoped I said that right. Um, the specialty market offers high quality, quality Latino and Jamaican products that reflect the taste of the local residents. Um, they've been there for 15 years Ooh. and, um, she, um, opened the market with family savings and um, later expanded a little bit, expanded the market as the next the, the next um, store next to her closed. Um, so yeah, they they're all about family, um, which is very important to me as well. Um, they um, what I like what they do the most is that we all know that supermarkets create a lot of waste as well. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to sell something that is slightly imperfect. Um, so, so much of organic produce um, in general just gets wasted. So what they did create was it did create um, 
things within their market to reuse um, the produce, such as their, you know, fresh juice um, stand that they have inside. Um, They partnered up with a local deli store, um, you know, to use the breads um, and all that stuff. And so it really feels like a closed loop uh, market where not much goes to waste. Um, And not only that, but... um, They've filmed a bunch, uh, like a bunch of um, people have filmed uh, music videos um, <laughs> there, just because it is such a local neighborhood, um, like friendly store that you want to go to. Um, so check them out; they have a really delicious food, um, organic produce, kombucha, beer, wine, um, all that good stuff. They have so. a killer vegan breakfast burrito, and mm-hmm. I didn't know. Film things there, but it makes sense because um, it does have a. I guess if I'm thinking back to a, a different era, it does sort of have a classic corner store vibe. Dare I say a bodega esque vibe? Even though yeah. I feel like bodegas are just a thing of New York. Yeah, it definitely gives off that um, that feeling. Yeah, exactly. So check them out. Um, and that's where my money's going to go. So we, well, I will drop links to both of these businesses in the show notes. But with that said, let's get to our chat today with our guest because we are so excited to have her on because y'all she is a woman on a mission to make yoga available to anyone who wishes to practice because duh, yoga is for everybody and you know, for everybody. Get with it. (laughs) (laughs) So for more than 20 years, Diane Bondi has been leading a yoga revolution, empowering students to come to the mat as they are, educating teachers for the need for inclusivity in yoga and leading systematic change within the yoga industrial complex. She is a celebrated yoga teacher, social justice activist, and leading the voice of the Yoga for All movement. Her inclusive view of yoga, asana, and philosophy inspires and empowers thousands of followers around the world, regardless of their shape, size, ethnicity, or level of ability. Diane is a powerful public speaker on topics including yoga and diversity, eating disorder recovery and caregiving, body image, self-empowerment, holistic self-care, entrepreneurship, and social justice and activism. Diane contributes to Yoga International, Do You Yoga, and Elephant Journal. She's featured and profiled in international media outlets like The Guardian, Huffington Post, Cosmopolitan, People, and more, and is also a published author herself. Her book, Yoga for Everyone, 50 Poses for Every Type of Body, is out now. And she co-authored the book, Yoga Where You Are, Customize Your Practice for Your Body Plus Your Life, with Kat Hegberg, which is available for pre-order now. This Canadian yogi filled us with so much energy off mic. We can't wait for her to energize you. Diane Bondi, welcome to the Black and Yellow podcast. So let's start by telling your audience your journey with yoga and what inspired you to start your own yoga studio first in person and obviously now virtually. Oh yeah. So I've been practicing yoga um, for 47 years. So for a really long, long time. I learned so that you can all do the math. I learned yoga when I was three years old. So I'm 50. Amazing. Uh, Yeah. Next to my mom. My mom had a book. It's on my bookshelf, but it was called uh, Be Young with Yoga. And so she, when she 
emigrated from Barbados to England to take her nursing degree, she was really stressed out. So she bought this book at a tag sale. This book was published in like 1956. And it had all these really interesting people wearing really interesting clothing doing yoga. And my mom was intrigued by it. And it was also something like she could do for herself. Like she didn't have to leave the house. She could do it for herself. So then from England, my parents emigrated to Canada and my dad went off to work and my mother had us, the kids at home. We were all under the age of four. So there was three of us under the age of four. I know. And she needed some de-stressing, right? And she's a new immigrant to a new country. Where we were living was pretty rural at the time. So there wasn't like a bus you could jump on and go to the mall or anything like that. So my mother needed an outlet to to get a little bit of movement and to de-stress. And so she came to yoga. And what she would do is when my brother and sister would go down for a nap, they're twins, they'd go down for a nap. She'd take three-year-old me and we'd leaf through this book and we'd do the, the fun poses in the book. And then she would give me a butterscotch lifesaver sucker, because I remember this so, to be quiet for half an hour, because General Hospital came on from 3 to 3.30. And so she would- <laughs> I love it. Yeah, she would sit me on the couch, give me the sucker, and then I had to be quiet. And so this was our time that we did every day. And that's how I got started, and it just kind of stuck. So I've been practicing on and off for 47 years. It's been part of my life for mostly all of my life. And what inspired you to start your own studio? Because that's a big jump from practicer to owner. Yeah. So I went to a yoga about six weeks postpartum from my son. My husband said to me, like I had a little bit of postpartum depression. And one of the things that they recommend is you get out, and get some fresh air and get some exercise. So my husband said to me, you know, you always practice at home. Maybe it's time that you go to the studio and practice. And I thought, okay, I'll go to the studio. And at this point, I had already been practicing, you know, for quite some time. I was 30, 35. So I've been practicing for a long time. So I go to the studio to sign in for this uh, yoga ashtanga class, which I'm not an ashtangi. I learned myself (laughs) from a book. And so I go to class and when I go to sign in, the person signing me in looks me up and down and says to me, um, you know, this is going to be hard, right? So they were basing my abilities and my abilities on what I look like. And this is supposed to be a non-judgmental zone, right? Like everybody's supposed to be welcome. And the teacher, right? And the teacher's like, looks to, looks to, to me, like she's 12. And she's judging me, right? She's looking at me and she's judging me. And I'm just like, really? Like, you know me for 30 seconds. But then again, I'm judging her too. Because I'm like, how old are you? And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. how do you uh, even? I'm humans. like, right? She started it. So I finished it, right? Yeah. That whole thing, right? So I get to class. And of course, I had a baby six weeks prior. And I was, I was struggling a little bit. And of course, I don't know Ashtanga. Like, I don't know the primary series. And I'm just like... And it's all in Sanskrit, which is fine. And I'm doing the best I can. And she's getting angrier and angrier and angrier that I'm in class because I'm slowing things down and I'm slowing the flow. And she's saying things like, you know, if you don't know the flow, you should be coming to workshops to learn the flow. And she's just saying this generally in class. And we have to remember that our practice isn't just about us. It's about the other people in the room and how we, how we influence the energy. And this is what she's saying through the whole class. Now, all of these other people, clearly, this is their regular class because they're right. all keeping up. They're all talking to each other. Everything's going great. And I'm clearly the odd person out, right? So I know that these conversations are directed at me and I left feeling really defeated. So I went home and I said to my husband, 
I, if I ever owned a yoga studio, I would never treat people like that because I want people to have a positive experience and I want people to come back to a practice that could ultimately teach them the tools they need to live a more successful life, right? And so I came home, I was pretty upset. And I said to my husband, I'm going to open my own yoga studio. And at that point, I was like a, uh, an accountant and I had, you know, I was working for a corporation and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, wait, what? Like, what, what, <laughs> what just happened? You went to a class and now we're going to own a yoga studio. And so it was kind of funny because it had been swirling around in my head and I had just finished my 200 hour teacher training. Mm. Up until that point, I had just been practicing. I had been teaching fitness classes and like putting little pieces of yoga stretching in it to see if people would like it. And so I had already been pretty much teaching yoga before I went to 200 hours because I had been practicing already for 30 plus years. So I just shared what I knew and I was already a fitness instructor. So I just used my fitness knowledge and I attached the poses to it and I just taught, right? And so then I thought to myself, I better get some education. So I went and got my 200 hour teacher training while I was teaching yoga. So I would come to my yoga class and I'd be like, okay, everybody, this is what we're doing. And so how ah. I, yeah, this is what I learned this week in yoga teacher training. So we're going to do it this week. And so um, it started off where I just rented a hall in my local uh, church. I rented the church hall and I put a bunch of flyers out in the neighborhood and I said, come practice with me. And so I started out with like 12 of my neighbors who were like, sure, I'll come do this with you. And then 12 of my neighbors turned in like 20, 20 turned into 40, 40 turned into 100, 100 turned into 200. And pretty soon I outgrew the space of the church. And um, we ended up opening a, a yoga studio. Like I ended up looking for a space. And my husband came home from work one time and said, I think I found the perfect space for this yoga studio. And I'm like, we're not going to be able to afford it. Let's just go look anyway. So I looked and it was a, it had been a, a former dance studio. So the floor <gasps> was already laid and it was all, yes. everything was already set up. I just had to move in, do a little minor painting, rep repair the floor and I was good to go. And awesome. so- that's how it started. And so I just kind of shifted those 200 students into that space. And oh, I wow. just love that. Yeah, yeah. That's how it started. Yeah. Side note, you guys can't see her, but I can see her. And you look amazing. <laughs> she looks like Rihanna. I feel like very, giving us all the pop star like, vibes. Like glow. Just, she's literally glowing. I'm not joking, you guys. Just so you know, I have a love affair with bronzer, so I do maybe have a little bit yes. of bronzer and a little bit of highlighter on. And Rihanna is from Barbados, which is my country of origin. That's where I'm from. So I love anything that refers back to my sis, Rihanna, to my cousin, Rihanna. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so I have a full Beautiful. face of Fenty on today. Just, just for that. I think that you might need to teach her how to do some downward dog pond de mat if you ever yeah. cross paths <laughs> with her. Totally. I'm, you know, everybody in Barbados is like, you know, she's my cousin. I'm like, everybody says that. Even my mother, my mother knows, you know, we're related, we're related to the Fenties. I'm like, okay, mom. I love it. I'm related thing. to the Obamas. So like, right. I understand that. Right. It's like a shoestring <laughs> relation. Yeah, for best. sure. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. So Good. everybody lays, everybody lays claim to her. So. Right. Right <laughs> on. Yeah. So we know that yoga is a very common practice. In the U.S. for sure. Yeah. Um, but I also imagine that the yoga we practice here looks very different and sounds very different than the yoga <laughs> practice in South Asia where it was originated from. Um, yoga here in the West feels noticeably quite washed, capitalist, totally. and yeah. completely void of South Asian culture. Yeah. Um, how are the two practices 
of yoga different? What aspects of the yoga practice are forgotten or not mm. focused on the West and are mm-hmm. essential or important to the East? You know what's really interesting? Uh, I've been talking about yoga and cultural appropriation for a while because it, it feels very much that. But what happens with ca- when capitalism and um, – <laughs> diet culture intersect and they find themselves on the mat, that's the kind of yoga that we have right now. So what's going on with yoga right now is it, it's very much ha- looks to me and has for, for a long, long time a lot like white women wellness, right? Where we only see white women on the mat. Uh, for a long time, the images of yoga we would see would be young, flexible, like hypermobile, quite frankly, like young, like white mm. and very thin right? Yep. Like that very yeah, thin aesthetic like, that aligns. Yeah, exactly. That aligns perfectly with, you know, Eurocentric beauty standards and trends that have been at the forefront of beauty culture and fitness culture for the last 50 years. Like we might be seeing a bit of a shift in the last, I would say five to 10 years, but primarily what we see, like you go into the Google search engine and you look up yoga the first 10 images you see are going to be white, young, flexible women doing yoga. Then you'll start to see people of color filter in. You'll get to page six of the Google search before you actually see a South Asian person doing yoga. Crazy. Yeah. Like oh. the sixth. When was the last time you saw a South Asian person on the front of yoga journal? When was the last time you saw a South Asian person being elevated to uh, celebrity status like some of these celebrity teachers, right? Like we know who's at the top mm. of the celebrity status in the yoga culture world, and they're not South Asian people, right? No. Not in North America. There are people who fit the conventional young beauty standard. And so that's what happens when capitalism and uh, fitness culture and diet culture invades a culture that's not their own. And so all the teachings that we see for the most part are very devoid of any attachment to South Asian culture, which is really, really sad which is why I'm a big fan of the Yoga is Dead podcast because those are two yes. South Asian teachers who speak to the experience of being South Asian in the white culture or the white world culture of yoga. And another great person to listen to is Susan Barataki. She speaks a lot about... Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. She's, I, t- I chatted with her. We almost... Um, we wanted to schedule her as well um, for this episode, but the, the scheduling was a little funky. But she's, she's amazing. Super busy and super yeah. amazing. And she posts a lot about, you know, appropriation versus appreciation. What the yes. West likes to focus on is what yoga looks like, right? Mm-hmm. So the fo- they like to focus primarily on the third limb, which is the asana, right? They don't pay any attention to the first two limbs. It's all about the asana. It's all about the yoga mat you're on. It's all about the clothing you're wearing. It's all about the advanced performative, and that's what I call them, performative poses that you do. It's not actually about what the, the first two limbs are, right? Our yamas and our niyamas, right? They're not talking about how to show up in the world and reduce violence, how to find liberation, how to do self-study. Those are the things that are primarily found in the South Asian practice is actually the tools that gives us, it gives us to lead, lead our best life and to connect with others, to help lift others out of suffering. To have, at the core of what yoga is about, it's about liberation for all of us, right? Not just about liberation for white folks or for white women particularly. It's about all of us. And for a long time, this practice has felt very exclusive because of the marketing we see around it, 
because of the large uh, yoga brands, what they put out or filtered out into the world. It's only super recently that we're starting to see people with disabilities included in yoga, uh, people of color including in yoga, people in non-conforming bodies, meaning people who are part of the LGBTQIA community are starting to be included. And that's sad because at the, the, the word yoga literally means unity. It literally wow. means that, right? Crazy. When you and look it up. It. Oh. And it's very divisive. Like when I right. started practicing and be like, oh, I practice Ashtanga. It's the only true form of yoga. Oh, I practice Jiva Mukti. We actually are the true yogis. Oh, I practice Anasara. And it was really very divided. Instead of finding the things that bring us together, and that's our commonality in this practice, mm-hmm. it was very divided. And I found that people were very um, privileged in the way that they taught it and the way that who could show up. There were a lot of gatekeepers of yoga in the West and those gatekeepers were primarily affluent, college educated, um, you know, able-bodied, cisgender, heteronormative white women that were <laughs> deciding who, who gets to be elevated in this yoga right. practice. And that was very problematic. So back in 2012 or 11, I can't remember, I should go look it up. I wrote a yoga blog post for uh, Elephant Journals that was, the title was Yoga Isn't Just for Skinny White Women or Skinny White Girls. Wow, you wrote this almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I wrote this almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Is that, yeah. So I've been talking about this for a long, long time. And I said I was tired of coming to a yoga class and being in a plus size body and being disregarded or um, being in a black body and being disregarded or, or, or being asked if I've ever practiced before or being directed to the karma class. Because, you know, as a black person, I couldn't possibly afford to come to yoga. Of course you know, not. Yeah, all stereotypes, like all of the microaggressions that I experienced as a plus size yoga practitioner in very white spaces. And I just had had enough at this point. And I wrote this blog post saying, you know, it's for really is for all of us. And it was amazing because it went viral in like 10 minutes. Like everybody who had ever had felt any kind of way in a yoga class, anybody who ever felt marginalized in a yoga mm-hmm. class or left out was weighing in. I mean, I think within two hours, it had like a thousand comments because people wow. were like, oh my God, this is my story. And I said, this is problematic if this many people have this story of a practice that's designed to help you live the best life, to help you end suffering, to help you see things as they really are. And what we don't focus on here in the West is the philosophy. All we focus on is looking good in your camp. Good on you, Diane, because you know what they say, it only takes 3% of the population to start talking about something to actually make it part, to actually make it a conversation that people want to uh, jump into and want to give their feedback on. And so good for you to get that conversation going. And well, it figures out, holy shit, yeah. It figured, it, it, I call myself an accidental activist. I just got really angry and I was just yeah. really pissed off. And I'm like, I'm going to write about this. So I wrote about it and then people started sharing it. And I met my friend Melanie Quine and she reached out to me and said, hey, we're creating this thing called the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. And we want to change the forward-facing imagery of yoga to include all of us. We want to bring the focus back to people's stories to people's stories of liberation through the yoga practice, how people, how the practice has changed them, how the practice has affected their body image and all that stuff. So we created the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. Uh, we, I wrote uh, a story for the collaborative stories. So we published a few books around that, reaching out to people saying, 
what is your story of yoga? Because we really wanted to change those forward-facing imagery to include all of us. And that was mm-hmm. like one of the first steps. And that happened in 2012. And then we were invited to the Yoga Journal Off the Mat Into the World conference mm-hmm. uh, in San Diego in 2014, I want to say. And we sat down with the then editor of Yoga Journal. We sat down with Lululemon and we sat down with um, Off the Mat to talk about what are some of the problems that A, that Yoga Journal had been oh, yeah. out there in of yoga and setting what the standard is for yoga and deciding what the aesthetic is for yoga. Also calling out Lululemon at the time for their limited sizing for not including people in plus size bodies. And a lot of their models that they were using to advertise their yoga clothing were, were white and thin yeah. and just being really limited in that. And, and expensive. Them, oh my God. Who pays 150 bucks for a pair of pants? You're just going to spread it. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, actually, you said Lululemon, and it kind of makes me want to jump into my next point, because you did a really great job of of visually laying out the average, quote unquote, yoga doer. When I say that, I mean the particular type or aesthetic that we think of when we think of yoga. Right. Thin, fit, white, affluent, able-bodied, generally female. I don't think I was the only person that wanted to slap Gwyneth Paltrow when I read her in Wall Street Journal. Yes! About how she claimed to popularize yoga. Get out of here, Gwyneth Paltrow. Get out. Sit down. Put your feet up. We are sick of you. Totally. I was over that, too. I thought that's white women privilege, if ever I Yes! Yes! I'm sorry if it comes off the wrong way, but, like, because I've done yoga, you have a job. Go sit down. down. If if truth be known, in 1992, when I was adding these yoga poses to my, like, to my fitness classes, it was the time that Madonna started practicing Kabbalah Uh and started doing yoga. I can't remember what branch of yoga she, or what, what kind of yoga she was doing. I want to say she was doing maybe Diva Mukti or something like that. But anyway, Mm. she had taken up uh, a yoga practice. And if we want to be honest, it became really popular with white women when Madonna started doing it in 1992 when Gwyneth was 10 or whatever the fuck she was. So I don't even know. I think she's 40, so she might have been 12. But you know what I'm saying? I just am like, really? If you really want to pinpoint the white woman that elevated that in the 90s, it's actually Madonna and not Gwyneth Paltrow. Because a lot of people who were teaching yoga at the time were saying once she had that movie where she was a yoga teacher, all of a sudden everybody was in yoga class. And if we want to be really, really honest and take it right back to when yoga came to the West back in the 1950s, mm-hmm. it was actually Indira Devi who opened a yoga studio in Southern California and started teaching yoga to the stars for beauty and health and fitness. And that's the first time we see it kind of get commodified is by mm-hmm. Indira Devi back in the 1950s when she was teaching yoga to Marilyn Monroe and things like that. So if we really want to pinpoint a white woman who wants to take credit for it, like I'm putting these all in air quotes, right? <laughs> uh, just so that we're clear, we could really, we would really pinpoint her and not you, Gwyneth, not you. <laughs> all you're known for is like steaming your vag. That's what you know. Like, yeah, I exactly. And candles that smell like your cooch. Like, whatever, dude. Like, maybe just stick to your goop shit. Yeah, because we also don't miss you on the big screen either. But 
we digress because I actually yeah. want to ask. Well, that like very thin white sh- shade. No, sorry. Go. Shakespeare in Love was so overblown and like take your take your whatever and go. Um, that really thin white affluent aesthetic that's got to affect who feels welcome. Totally. To come into a yoga space. And I just totally. want to know where did this this you might have actually already answered it. But like, where did the thin white yoga image come from? Totally from capitalism, right? Okay. So okay. if we go back to capitalism and fitness culture and beauty standards. So if we can keep women trying to achieve a beauty standard that is forever shifting, forever changing, forever trending, and keep them completely unhappy with themselves, then we're making money. It's a mm. 70 billion, the diet and fitness industry is a $70 billion a year crazy $70 billion a year of people who are unhappy with how they look. And I haven't even added in uh, the plastic surgery. I haven't even added in that side of it. I'm strictly talking about people who are dieting Mm. because they are unhappy with their bodies. And they've been told a massive lie that doing this diet or doing that diet or doing this or doing that is going to make them happy or is going to make them look like a Victoria's Secret model. And I, when I do my talks on uh, yoga, racism, and yoga anti-racism work and body image, I talk about that aesthetic. So we're, the aesthetic that we've pushed out there is what we see on the runway in a Victoria's Secret mm-hmm. you know, show. show, which has yeah. now gone the way of the dodo bird, which is no more. But when we look at those women, those women represent 1% of the population. Mm-hmm. So 1% of the population looks like Victoria's Secret models naturally. They're born to parents who are over six feet tall, they have a waist that's 24 inches. Uh, they have a cup size that a C or B or C or better. Like these are very specific requirements to be in that show that sets up this ideal of womanhood that the rest, 99% of us are supposed to live up to, which is absolutely ridiculous. Like it even yeah. goes back to sizing. When you think about the most popular size of clothing in America, it's a size 16. That's the most popular size. That's the average woman in America is a size 16. That's considered a plus size or a specialty size. That's mm-hmm. so messed up. Right? Shouldn't, be, shouldn't the size 000234, which is a rarer size, yeah. should right. that be the specialty size? And Absolutely. then the average size be the regular size? Just a thought. Well, we're also a so lot of the big... Up. The big yoga brands don't even make clothes that large. Like a lot of the mainstream no. yoga brands that we love don't even make size 16. And that no. sends a very particular message too. Diane, right. I almost feel like you're telling me like the yoga industry is preying and monetizing off of women's insecurities. I'm not like, you know, that's not, not a big shock, but I just feel... Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In a practice that is supposed to help you find yourself, right? In a practice so that's... Twisted centers around self-study and how we show up in the world and how we take care of each other and how we take care of the planet. And the very first tenant of yoga is ahimsa, right? Nonviolence. And then we have all these companies perpetuating these stereotypes that make people perpetuate violence against themselves in their in their hate of their body, in their hate of things that are different from what is considered the norm, which is what is set up by capitalism. And by the patriarchy, right? Like it was really interesting a couple years ago. Um, it's just this is why the Victoria's Secret L brand is losing money, and that's why brands like Ari, which mm-hmm. is a brand from American Eagle, is or like, Savage, your girl Fenty, or, or Sa- yeah, because it's 
we are past this exclusionary thing. Nobody's interested in that anymore. Absolutely. Nobody's interested in that anymore. And it's an old prototype. The new generation of people coming up, millennials and currently Gen Z, are not interested in that. They're growing up seeing everybody around them, and they're all about the inclusion. They're, they're a smarter generation than mine. I'm a Gen Xer. They're a smarter generation than mine. And it's you guys, actually. It's your generation that's actually <laughs> going to be shifting this <laughs> and having these conversations and are not interested in excluding people anymore. Right. right? That's right. not a thing anymore. Right, right. right. And yeah. as a side note, no violence. Like, let us, we would be remiss to not mention the 2011 murder in the back of a Lululemon in Bethesda, Maryland. I mean, just saying, just saying. Ooh. We won't get too deep into it. Let's talk disability, but I just have to podcast throw out that murder. For another day. Yeah, exactly. podcast for another day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Exactly. Yep. So I, I want to say that I think I shock exactly. No one, when I say that yoga has a disability inclusivity problem, mm. i.e. if you're fit and able-bodied, you can do yoga. But if you're yep. a person with disabilities, then practicing yoga is incredibly difficult. There, There is this constant application of able-bodied supremacy, and you talked about it a little bit already, that sends a clear message to disabled people that yoga is not for them. Mm-hmm. You talked about meeting with Yoga Journal and Lululemon and all that stuff, but is the Western yoga working to change this? And if so, how? Yes. So my friend Jeevana Heyman of AccessibleYoga.org is one of the people on the forefront of changing that. I don't know if you're also familiar with Matthew Sanford of Mind Body Solutions. Yes. Who is a Iyengar teacher who happens Mm -hmm. to be a paraplegic. So that has been like a huge shift in the culture. I'm looking for my book here. I I wrote a book uh, last year that came out last year in uh, 2019 called Yoga for Everyone, in which I, two of my students, one of my students has cerebral palsy. One of my students is a double amputee featured in the book. Um, I have a a plus size black man featured in the book. I have a holder white gentleman. I have my yoga teacher, um, Dr. Uh, Gail Parker, who's in her 70s in the book. So I, I, it is changing. I would see I've been noticing a big shift in the past five years. Just this week, my girlfriend, Amber Carnes, was on the front of a yoga journal for the month of November, December, and she's a plus-sized yogi. Congrats. So, yeah, I gave That's her awesome. snaps for that because I've been done with yoga journal for quite some time. But now they put a, the month before, actually the month before, they put a, a person of color who is also an amputee on the front of their magazine. So things are changing and it's because the yoga, those of us who want to have equitable classes for everybody have been pushing back. Our voices, right. it's a small grassroots movement, but it has power. Mm-hmm. And we've been having this conversation for the past eight years and really pushing back. When I did that yoga journal, um, Lululemon conference in San Diego, uh, back in 2014, it's taken them six years to play catch up. They could have been at the front of that. We called them out. We've been calling them out consistently. Now they're making a change. I mean, I'm not on board hundred percent. I need to see some other things happen, mm-hmm. but right. we are seeing a change, which is great. And we are pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing because People with disabilities are people and they get to show up to yoga class. And I would like to see it be mainstream, that that, that there isn't necessarily a specialty class for that, that we have come to a point of enlightenment where we can see people as people and we're able as teachers to adapt and create classes that anybody can show up to. And my first experience of um, 
working with a person with a disability was my friend Christine, uh, who came to my class, who has a, a severe disability. And she texted me and she said, or she sent me an email when I had my studio. And she said, uh, I would like to come to yoga. This is what's going on with me. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't get out. I have this going on. I have that going on. And I was just like, yeah, yoga is about breathing and breath. So if I can just get you to come and breathe with me, then we're going to do yoga. If I can teach you the philosophy of ahimsa and self-study and you know, all the things mm -hmm. that I can teach you to be in your body in a way that feels good, then of course we can do yoga. And that changed uh, my perspective. We have been uh, practicing together now for 10 years. Prior to the shutdown for COVID, on Friday nights, we go to yoga together. And now she's in a mainstream class. And me and her other friend tag team her, and we're there to help her, help her get her water, help her be in class, get whatever benches. And we practice next to her and we look over. And if she needs help, we help her. And if she doesn't, then we do our flow. And that's what that's I would, awesome. I, that's what I love to see. And when we first walked into the class, she's like, I'm going to the back. I go, no, you're not. We're going to the front mm -hmm. because people need to see that your body is a good body. Like everybody else's. Yeah. And it was really funny because then somebody messaged me on Instagram saying, I saw you come in. Like, I can't believe you live in Windsor or whatever, but I saw you come in with uh, your friend, you guys went right to the front of the room and it never occurs to me because I'm in a plus size and you're a plus size person. And it never occurs to me just to go to the front of the class. I go, there's nothing wrong with my body and I'm not ashamed. And mm -hmm. I'm going to the front of the class. And the same is for Christine. There is nothing wrong with your body. We're going to the front of the class. Everybody mm -hmm. has a limitation. And if people have a problem with that, then yep. they're not practicing their yoga. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, the body is not an apology point blank. Hello, Sonia right. Renee Taylor. Hello. Yeah, yes, for sure. Right. 100%. I also I feel like you're going to be waiting for Lululemon to catch up uh, to do the right thing for a while, because let us not forget Lululemon. Even the sheer name of the company is based mm -hmm. in racism. OK, the, C the CEO, Chip Wilson, named Canadian Lemon. OK, we won't. But we don't. We're not going to like we're not going to like judge other Canadians against him. Like, him. Exactly. <laughs> But like it, 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 it bears repeating that like Lululemon, the reason that he named it Lululemon because is because he wanted to see Japanese people struggle to say it. I mean, that's yep. why there's so many L's. So like yep. Yep. Lululemon, he said, it. He, said it, he said it in a, I think either in a Wall Street Journal article yeah. or like somewhere prominent, he made that comment. Damn, he said it, it out loud. It's in print. You can look it up. It's either the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, like some big publication. He actually said that. I think it was the and Wall I, Street Journal. And when did it get so messy? Like when did the Wall Street Journal turn into page six or something? But it's a couple Crazy. years ago. So yeah. yeah. So he said that probably in the last decade. But then nobody, if he had said it today, he would Ooh. have been dragged. Yeah. But he ended up losing his kind of his status in the company when he was blaming women for uh, the poor construction of the pants. Remember when Lula yes. had a problem with us see-through pants? Yes. And he's yeah. blaming women's bodies for that. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what ended his career because he didn't actually apologize to women for that. He apologized to his employees for making their job more difficult, but totally. he didn't actually apologize. But the truth of the matter is he's still the major stakeholder in that company. So those, these are things to think about when you're doing yeah. stuff. And to their credit, again, in air quotes, um, they have, they have up their size, I think, to size 16 now, I mm -hmm. think, in a few of their uh, clothing brands. So I have noticed that. So it's trickling down. There's, you can no longer make, no longer, if you're a big company, you can no longer continue to make excuses for not including everybody. And, yeah, I, you know, 
Shout out to Nike. When I was in um, New York City last year in 2019, and I went to their flagship store, the very first thing that I walked in and saw was a plus size mannequin Mm. and all this imagery, like right at the front door, not in the back, not in a corner reserved off to the side, not out of view because we don't want any fat people. Hard to see, Mm -hmm. hard to find. Exactly. Front and center. And if, if Nike can do it, then everybody else can do it too. You listen, Absolutely. just do it. I believe it's Nike who says that. Just, right. Right. just right. do it. Let's talk about Yoga Journal because you mentioned Yoga Journal and they've got a lot of catching up to do as mm-hmm. well. Because they in early do. 2015, there was a huge controversy surrounding Yoga Journal where they issued two split covers of the same cover. So one featured Jessamine Stanley, praise, praise, body positive yoga instructor gorgeous she's a writer she's also doing some work for hbo so you know slight oh, wow yeah. yeah like she's kicking it or kicking ass. um yeah. and then the other cover was the owner of yoga works who was white and thin and i'm just going to keep the name off for purposes of this episode yeah. um but both women are incredibly accomplished no shade yeah. Yeah. but this move felt very loaded and unnecessary and was yeah. criticized for being obviously racist but also lacking body positivity and body inclusive narratives and yeah. quite honestly it is still a shock to see a person of color any color yeah. on the cover of a yoga magazine or to, to yeah, see of color as the owner of as the owner of their own studio and i just wonder yeah. what standards and practices does the yoga industry need to change in mm. order to be more inclusive uh, physically, so more body inclusivity and more yeah. inclusivity. Well, first off, you need to hire teachers and train teachers of all different sizes and body types because that's what's going to happen. When you show up to a class and a teacher looks like you, then you're more comfortable to come to class, right? Absolutely. If right? If you're offering a class in a language that is prominent where you live, so if you're in New York and you and Spanish, I know, is very prominent in New York. If there's, there's Spanish-speaking classes, then people from that community can come in. Mm. If you have older yoga teachers teaching, then that's what attracts those different people. So if it's the same stereotypical yoga teacher that you're seeing every time, and you're only marketing to that particular demographic, then that's who shows up. You've done the right, right? You've done your marketing right. to this demographic, you're creating a safe space for this demographic, then that's who's going to show up. So you need to start with training teachers to be able to teach that look all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Because mm-hmm. I remember um, when I owned my yoga studio at first, I wouldn't put up pictures of myself because I was worried nobody would come and practice with a fat black yoga teacher, right? And so when I started putting up pictures of myself in my advertising, guess what happened? The demographics Everyone came. Exactly. The demographics of the studio changed because people could see themselves in me. Right, and it right. goes back to that adage, you cannot be what you cannot see. Mm-hmm. So just, just think about this. With it, uh, Fingers crossed in this next election, there's an opportunity for a woman of African descent to be second in command, right? Yeah. What does that say to little girls of color all over the world? That this is also for you, that you can also ascend to this. I remember when Barack Obama ascended to the highest office in the world, that I could look at my boys who are also of mixed culture and say to them, you can, now there's an example that you can do this too. And that is truthful for the yoga industry. For so long, the people who have been elevated to the highest echelons in this particular practice have been white, able-bodied, cisgendered, conventionally attractive, Mm -hmm. hypermobile, primarily women, right? And you, 
when you put a person up there like that, that's who you're going to attract. But if we have a broad spectrum of teachers, then we're going to attract a broad spectrum of students. So letting go of this old beauty narrative, letting go of these old ideas that only able-bodied people are, these are only spaces for able-bodied people. These are conventionally white spaces and mixing it up, offering classes that are all kinds of different abilities, shapes, sizes, and genders are the only way to change it. And that's the catch up that the yoga industry has to do. Catch up yoga industry, catch up. Right? (laughs) And we both, but we've seen it, right? And we've seen it in other industries. I remember, I think it was 2015 maybe, um, that runner, running world or running. uh, Runner's world. Yeah. Yeah. Put um, uh, Mira Valerio on the cover. She's an ultra marathoner who's in a plus size body. That's right. Right. Mm-hmm. They put her on the cover. And it was funny because Melly and I were like trying to get a plus size person on the cover of Yoga Journal way back in 20, 2014. I said, wow. you could have been on the cutting edge of this. But I mean, eventually they caught up. The yoga, the, the Jessamine Stanley debacle was horrible, was awful. horrifying, awful. I actually ended up doing a podcast about it and talking to Jessamine about it, asking her if she knew that she was going to have a split cover and, and they didn't. And then they did it again with um, Nicole Cardoza like mm, a couple months later. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that they have learned their lesson now. I have to say the last five covers of Yoga Journal have been very different from what we've seen in the past. So I... I call these companies in, out, up, whatever you need to do it. I've called them out. I've written blog posts about Lululemon. I've written about Yoga Journal. I've written about all these people. And if they make changes, then I'm happy because the point of activism is to make change. And if sure. change is happening, then that's great. And that's, that's the purpose of everything. We want change. Right. We want to see everybody represented. And we know in your generation and Gen Z coming up behind you guys, that this is the most diverse generation ever. They, you know, my kids who are 13 and 15 um, have no problem with, uh, with homosexuality, have no problem with the trans community, have no problem with people who look different from them. Right. It's a very different understanding of the world. And I am here for it. Ooh. Let me tell you, I am here yes. for it. I am over old white men running everything. Absolutely. I I am over all of that. It's time. How can somebody who doesn't have your lived experience make decisions for you? So we need, we need people that look all kinds of different shapes, sizes, all different abilities, all different genders to be at the front of the mat teaching so that people who look like them can say, this is also a place for me. And that's where they need to play. Well said. Well said. So uh, speaking of change, speaking of gender, speaking of catching up, um, I'm pretty (laughs) sure you you answered this already, but how can the yoga industry be more inclusive to non-binary or non-gender fluid individual? Is it that too, where they they do become teachers of some sort? And I think we sometimes need to start with specialty classes so that people feel like they're practicing with other people who look like them. So the first time I... Right. The first time I took a, a black girl yoga class in Toronto, I was just like, I'm not the only black person in class. How interesting. Oh, my teacher is black. This feels really cool. We can wow. have these. Right. How we can amazing. have these. Yeah. There was no microaggressions. Nobody asked me if they could touch my hair. Nobody asked me if I'd ever practiced before. You know, nobody made any judgments about me. Nobody asked me if I was this other person they had, this other black person they had met a week ago. Like none of that. <sighs> You know, I don't have to deal with any of those microaggressions when everybody looks like me, right? Yeah, yeah. And so sometimes we need to have those specialty classes so that people feel comfortable going 
that they're not going to be the only trans person in the class or their, or their teacher is also going to be trans or you know what it is? Yeah, like we yeah. need to have those spaces that feel safe for people who have been traditionally marginalized in these communities. And then when people start feeling more comfortable, maybe they'll branch out to more mainstream classes. And then mainstream classes need to play catch up. You need to educate your teachers about microaggressions. You need to educate your teachers about racism. You need to educate your teachers about their own personal bias. And if they're actually practicing their yoga, they should be aware of it already because it's required in the practice. Do also, your self-study. Should like, teachers also think of themselves as constant students? I mean, shouldn't totally. white teachers go into non-binary spaces and take class? all black classes and take class, all Latino classes. I mean, like, isn't that part of what makes a good yoga teacher a great yoga teacher to be able to I, go into different perspectives? But here's the thing. The minute that you're in an all black uh, yoga class as a white teacher, how do the black students feel with you being there? Do you know what ah, I mean? Interesting. Okay. Okay. So there might be some training that you need to do. And I mean, there's lots of anti-racism. I do anti-racism training, Keisha Battles, um, uh, Rebecca Price. There's a lot of teachers out there that are doing this to prepare the yoga teachers to see their own bias, mm, right? Ooh. Like, mm. you know, around color. And we know that anti-black yeah, racism is problematic. Mm -hmm. Here in Canada, there's a bill put before parliament right now um, to declare anti-black racism. Oh, yeah. I read about a that. Health, a health issue, right? Yeah. A chronic it's health amazing. Issue. Yes. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay, we cool. We need to address these things. And those things need to be addressed on the mat. Your own bias shows up when you teach because that 24 by 68 inch piece of rubber or plastic that we practice on is a microcosm of what is going on in the world. So everything yeah. that happens in the world so happens true. in those yoga studios and you need to be aware of it. Mm. Like I've been in yoga studio spaces where people have moved their mats. People have stopped talking. I've taught workshops where people are like, what do you mean I have to talk to black people? I'm like, you can't be a yoga teacher. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. If you can't talk to everybody, you can't be a yoga teacher. I'm just saying. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying. Whew. Okay. That's, I sit corrected. Thank you for filling me in on that. Yeah. That just amazes me too, that, that they would, that the idea of becoming a yoga teacher and not knowing or have the fundamental understanding that you're going to talk to people of a different color like I where who are these? Like go back. Honest go, to God. Like, I don't know. Honest to God. <laughs> she said this to mind. me in a teacher training and I'm like, okay, I can't talk to you anymore. Like you what I have to make friends with black people now? And I'm like, what? Like yours your bubble is so closed off that you don't no. have any black yeah. friends. And I ask teachers to do that. Scroll through your Instagram feed and see if anybody looks different from you. Go right. through your wedding album and see if there's any people of color at your wedding. Like, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Do you have any friends that have a different lived experience than yours at all? Mm -hmm. And right. if you don't, why is that? Mm -hmm. you know, right? Problematic. That? Yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. How, how have you segregated yourself through de facto segregation? How have you segregated yourself that you don't have any interactions with people that look different from you, that you don't have any diversity of thought, diversity of friendships? Food. Like, a food like how yeah. is it you managed to coast through the world and not butt up against somebody different than you and mm. and you need to you need to figure out how to do that you need to figure out how to make friends that are different than you so you can broaden your worldview so mm. that you can yes. start to unpack the stereotypes you have about whatever culture all Asians are what all black people are what all men are what like whatever it is that your bias is mm -hmm. you need to 
actively figure out what your unconscious bias is to bring it to a conscious bias and change your behavior. Love it. Yeah. I mean, you sound like us on our very first episode because the, the ability for white people to coast through life, as you say, without people of color as friends to Jack and I has always been mind boggling, but yeah. it was a very big part of the reason that we started the show. So we stand with you. Yes, you are absolutely correct. <laughs> Think of, you know what kills me? The most popular show in the 90s was Friends. Do you remember any black characters on Friends? Aisha Tyler had a character arc. And I only she- remember that because I was like, oh, there really weren't a lot of black people on Friends. And my friend who loved Friends was like, Aisha Tyler was on it. And I was like- One black person right. representing every person of color. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't remember an Asian person. Do you remember mm-hmm. an Asian person Mm-mm. on Friends? No. And they lived in New York City. So tell me how, re- how realistic that is. Like, Sex in the been- City was the same way. Oh, I think the only true. black person I remember, two black people, uh, Samantha dated Blair Underwood or Mary was oh. Carrie that dated Blair Underwood. And when Charlotte, no, when uh, uh, the redhead, the redhead, the redhead, Cynthia Nixon's character had yeah. a baby and the baby wouldn't stop crying. A neighbor knocked on her door. Of course, it's a black woman who's like, girl, what is going on? Let me let, let me settle this baby real quick and like put the baby <sighs> down. But it was this like, you know, magical Negro stereotype. Like, what totally. the fuck? Totally. Yeah. And, the, and they all live in New York. And television. Works in stereotypes. They work Mm -hmm. in stereotypes, they create stereotypes, they perpetuate stereotypes. And the the problem is, you know, it's not that stereotypes aren't true. Some of them are, but they tell a single story. Mm -hmm. And there are many stories, right? There are many different stories to tell that we need to be telling all the time. And those one-dimensional characters are just really gross. Like, it's not necessary. Yeah. You know what else is gross? Patriarchy. Oh, for sure. And I don't think there's a single industry that's not affected by patriarchy. Yoga, no exception. A lot of men own the large, influential yoga brands that we say while rolling our eyes, uh, which means these men are profiting off of women's insecurities. I feel like we've talked about this in this episode before, but what does it mean for the yoga industry to fight the patriarchy? Oh, my gosh. So many things. <laughs> I know. Oh, do we have another hour to talk about? There's so many things. Like, did you know, pulling the the beauty standard away from you know from yoga. Let's let's honestly mm. think about the women who show up on the front of these big publications, whether it's yoga or fitness. Whether we throw that in there, these are conventionally attractive people that live up to a particular beauty standard that is designed to entice, you know, for the most part, white men, yeah. right? Yeah. Like when we look at L brands, um, uh, back to Victoria's Secrets, yep. I'm happy to see them kind of go away at the, the dodo bird. Dissolve. Dissolve. <laughs> um, I remember when asked, when they were asked, would you have a trans woman walk the show? And, or would you have a plus size woman walk the show? And he said that the, the owner of this, this company said, well, this is a fantasy show, mm-hmm. right? Like, they don't fit the fantasy. I'm like, who's fantasy? Right. I'm a, I know people who are fantasizing about trans women and trans men. Right. I know people who are fantasizing about plus women. I like who, mm. who, like who? Yeah. And again, everything is for the white male gaze, right? And mm-hmm. we need to I- identify that when we see it and call it out. And remember that this is a practice made by brown people. Yes, brown people, right? Yes, right. And we forget that so much, and we need to honor that every chance that we get. Yoga has its roots in 
India and South Asia. Yoga also has a tie to Africa or to the continent. Yoga has a tie to Turtle Island where I'm on in mm. North, you know, on this, on this continent, right? On our continent, we're all, yeah, I forgot you guys. <laughs> for a minute, I thought you were in Europe. For a minute, I thought you were in Europe. But yeah, like every indigenous culture has a spiritual practice that's very similar to that. And it's really only white culture that doesn't, doesn't understand that these are sacred things that people can't just take, change slightly, and call it something else. It's not mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. it's you have to honor the, the indigenous um, practices and not take them. They are, they belong to indigenous people. I, you know, I don't smudge. I don't do things that belong to indigenous culture because I'm not indigenous. And I feel it. I feel like it, it's inauthentic when I do it. And it's wrong when I do it because I don't know the history behind it. I don't know um, the importance of it. And I never want to take somebody else as, as a black person who, <laughs> who has their culture appropriated the most, all the time, the most, I don't want to appropriate anybody else. So I always want to pay respect to the places where this comes from and right. honor those intentions. Got it. Well yeah, said. I, just, I, I remember sending this quote to Alana when I was doing a bunch of research for this episode before I get into the next question. I just wanted to read it. Um, it said, few white people make the connection between their attraction to yoga and the cultural loss their ancestors and relatives experienced when they bought into white dominant culture in order to access resources. Yeah. And that blew my mind, you know, just this tie to culture that white people just, just don't have, lost, nope. ignored, yep. um, never cultivated, you know. And and so we start to see all of the stuff be very apparent in in the yoga practice. Um yeah. it, it blew my mind as someone who is, you know, very culturally tied to my roots and same with you guys yeah um 100 so with that being said let's talk cultural appropriation um oh in, in, in yoga um how can yoga practitioners um especially teachers honor the practice and allow mm. for true cultural exchange to happen and yeah. not appropriate it? that's a loaded question <laughs> to take a deep breath in yeah deep take cleansing deep breath, breath <laughs> Cultural appreciation is when you are invited, right? You're invited right. into the culture. You don't, you know, if you're going to a Nigerian wedding and they say to you, here, mm -hmm. um, we would love you to wear this. And yep. that's your invitation and you honor it and you're kind and you don't pretend like you created it. Um, Put the gele on. Yeah, mango. Yeah, yes. mango. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You don't, you don't just help yourself to it, right? Mm. You're clear about where it comes from. Where you, you stand, about where, where you stand, you speak about where it comes from. You, you say you don't participate in things that are not yours, but you can say, you know, if you want more information, these are the people you need to talk to. This is their culture. Um, and, and I think that's really important to do that. There's a lot of great teachers out there. Like, like I said, Susan Barataki is talking about appreciate, appreciate, don't appropriate. She just wrote a book that's coming out to help teachers figure that out. That's a great resource for that. Yoga is Dead podcast. They let you know how to show up and not, oh, yeah. you know, how to show up in a way that is authentic and that, that talks to these, these practices. If you don't understand the practice, then, then don't teach it. Like if, if you are have a yoga space and you've got, like I had this situation where I worked at a yoga studio where uh, they were using a Buddha statue to keep the door open and a Buddhist <sighs> came into the cult, came into the studio and was like, oh my That's God, rude. is that 
yeah, is that Buddha on the floor? And I, and, and the teacher who was there at the time was like, oh my God, I didn't know. And then move the Buddha statue to a place, elevated to a place. And I often say to people, when do you see the head of Jesus lopped off his body and put in the garden? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? I see a Buddha head in the garden all through my neighborhood, right? Yeah. But we never lop off the head of Jesus and put him in the garden. You always see a full shrine to Jesus. Yep. If there's a, a person who this is their culture, like I have a lot of people who are European in my neighborhood, and they'll have whole shrines to Mary in their garden, right? Mm-hmm. You don't just see Mary's head amongst right. the plants. There's a right. whole shrine to her in the garden. Right. But when right. it comes to this stuff, because we're we on sale, it's, like yeah. 50% off at like a outlet or like Bed, a Bed Bath and Beyond or whatever, right. right? Like it's just, it's really interesting to me that people don't know or Buddha's in the bathroom. I'm just like, not good Mm -hmm. you know what I mean if if we don't know what it's about we shouldn't be speaking on it these are not our stories to tell and we should leave it to the culture whose story it is and elevate them to center like it I would love to see you know a South Asian teacher on the front of yoga journal I would love to see a South Asian teacher elevated to the celebrity status of Sean of the Sean Corns of the world right I would love to see that happen and I would love to see those teachers who are in such high regard lift those other people up. They've mm. been in the spotlight for decades. Can you step aside and elevate somebody else instead of sucking all the energy out of the room for yourself? Mm-hmm. Like, How can you step aside or use your privilege to elevate those teachers whose culture it is to share the authenticity of this practice? That would be amazing if that yeah. could happen. If those of us with, uh, who are at the top of our yoga game and re- raking in millions of dollars a year, a year you know, selling yoga could step aside and, and, and highlight teachers of color and highlight uh, South Asian teachers and, you know, and feature them prominently because this is their culture that we are participating. Well said. I mean, you kind of answered my last question as well. So I'm going to, I'm actually going to throw a little bit of a curveball. What, um, what responsibility do yoga customers have in making sure spaces are more inclusive what is our responsibility as people who want to practice to bring to the mat either virtually or in person like what what do we do to not perpetuate yeah yeah (laughs) exactly support teachers of color okay go to their workshops take their classes Every, uh, every February, I dedicate my Instagram feed to teachers of color. And I put teachers of color, black teachers in particular, because it's Black History Month. Mm-hmm. And I say, come take a class with us. We are qualified. Buy our books. Like, I know there's very few uh, yoga books that are written by people of color and South Asian people. Buy the book. Support a teacher of color. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because we're out here making less than white teachers. We're out here struggling. People don't take us seriously. A lot of those things happen. I remember when I was running my first teacher training, there was another person in town running a teacher training. And people were like, oh, I don't want to take it with you. I'm going to take it with the white, flexible, skinny teacher. And I'm just thinking, I'm going to teach you what it's like to show up in a space where you can teach everybody. They're going to teach you how to teach the able-bodied fit people who already know how to practice. I'm here to make this practice about all of us. You're going to get a very limited view of yoga if you only choose one specific aesthetic to uh, uh, appeal to, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's really about supporting teachers of color, listening, doing your research, reading. You know what I mean? There's another great teacher that I love, um, Kelly Schultz, who is, she's got K 
Cali Rebel Yoga Tribe, and she talks about this all the time about yoga uh, appropriation. And she's amazing to follow on Instagram. She does a yoga book club all the time, helping people learn about the truth about yoga yeah. and elevating people like her. Do you know what I mean? Putting yeah. her first and foremost, because yeah. again, this is her culture. She's very connected to it. She teaches on it. And it's important for us to elevate South Asian people. That's how, that's how we appreciate. That's what our responsibility is to know what we're consuming. The same way that you are so concerned with what you're putting in your body, you know, I'm only drinking coconut water from here and I'm Mm -hmm. only eating this and I'm only a vegan or whatever. The same way you put that kind of energy into yourself, put that kind of energy into the people you practice. And if you go into your yoga studio and everybody looks like you, ask yourself why, Mm -hmm. what is the studio doing to foster um, equity? And I'm at the point now where I'm using less, I'm using the term inclusivity less because it still feels like there's a gatekeeper with inclusivity, right? Oh, interesting. Right. There's a gatekeeper. I get to decide who gets to come to my yoga class and not you and not you and not you. And I decide what inclusion is. But Uh equity for me is more like every, we're going to make this as equitable as possible for everyone. Inclusivity still feels like there's a person who has all the power who gets to choose what, when these classes are, what these classes are, how these classes look, where equity is like, okay, we're creating a space where anybody and everybody can show up. And if your yoga classes aren't equitable, then you're not walking the talk. Like you're not walking the yoga talk, I would assume. Okay. Boom. And just like that, we're done with the big meaty questions. What about some rapid fire? We want to know more about Diane away from yoga. Oh dear. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. First question to come to mind. There are no wrong answers. Okay. What is your favorite activity to do in quarantine or was your favorite activity to do in quarantine? Because I realize you're in Canada and you are, you have a parliament's running efficiently and you guys are out of quarantine now. Well, we're still kind of in it. Okay. So we're still, we're still, yeah, semi-quarantine. We're still distancing and all that good stuff. Um, so does sleeping count? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh-huh. I, um, so I, I took up running back in January because like I turned 50 this year. So I was like, I need to do some big something for my 50th birthday. So I started running. And then when we went into quarantine, I started running more because I was anxious, right? Yeah. So I, I took yeah. up running and I just thought, I need to run off some of this anxiety, uh-huh. right? I mean, my yoga practice was working to a certain extent. I was feeling very agitated in my meditation practice. So I switched my meditation practice to like a moving meditation. Uh, and yeah. I, yeah. And I started running. And so that has been really um, helpful for me during quarantine. And then um, I bought a spin bike behind me here because I needed to temper my running with some spinning so that my knees weren't like, we hate you. Yeah. So I started riding my spin bike. I call her Spinderella because I'm like in love with her. I love it. Is it a Peloton or is it? Uh, no, it's okay. a spin bike. I would love a Peloton bike, but girl, I don't have $3,200 to spend on a stationary bike. Thank you, Peloton. But I don't like. I've seen so many of those. No, I've seen so many of those Peloton delivery um, sprinters. And I'm like, oh, I bet. Like that's no, big bucks. Who is getting all these delivered? I, I know. And that's the base modeling camp. Canada is $3,200. So that's like the base model. And I never buy anything in the base model. I kind of buy in the middle. I never, I never can afford the high end, but I never want to buy the cheapest one. I kind of want to buy the one in the middle. So I got myself a real cute Schwinn bike. She's, she does all the things. And I have the Peloton. 
Cinderella. <laughs> and um, she's got a, um, I, I have a, I have the app. I have the Peloton app. Cool. And I have an iPad. So I just put, plug that iPad go. down on there and I go. I, I don't know it's not a Peloton, right? Yeah. <laughs> Love it. And I okay. saved myself about $4,000. So, oh, you know. Yes, you did. <laughs> so are you, next stop, half marathon, marathon. Do you see that in your future? I just ran a half marathon last weekend. Wow. Yes. You're a badass woman. Yes. Yep, I did. I did. Me and my girlfriends ran uh, and we started training uh, in January. We're like, okay, that's what I'm doing. So yep. I actually did two this summer. I did the Sea Wheeze uh, back in <laughs> August <laughs> and I was leaving in that one. And then I did uh, the Detroit uh, virtual half marathon. So. Ooh, I love it. I love black women running. There's not enough of us out there. Love it. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really poignant for me because I started my running journey right around the time that Aubrey, Ahmad Aubrey was, was uh, murdered. Yeah. And so I was dedicating my runs on the days I got oh. up and I didn't feel like I was running. I was like, I'm running for him. And oh. I made sure... And even in this neighborhood that I live in, seeing a black woman running is also still pretty rare. Yeah. So it was really about my visibility. And uh, my girlfriend, Dee, who's also black, the two of us run together and we were like, black girls running. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. So Yeah. If you want a, a charity to support black girls run, they're fantastic. Yeah. They yeah. Are, I just bought a bunch of merch. I'm waiting for it to come because I oh. want to support that. I just bought a bunch of merch from them. I'm going <laughs> to copy you because I have not bought merch from them. I love that. Yeah. That's Where's how I'm your- supporting them. Your favorite place to do yoga? Uh, probably outside. I live uh, by Lake Erie. And pretty much like a four-minute walk from my house is the beach, like Lake Erie. Wow. And so my favorite oh. is to do yoga outside in front of the oh. lake. And Lake Erie is wow. like gorgeous. It looks like the ocean. It sounds like the ocean. I love that. Yeah. yeah that, it's not salty, I, but yeah. That, that's four minutes from, from the beach is, is something that... Alana and I yeah. <laughs> would love, right? Yes. Yeah. Diane, your life. <laughs> your life I is know. amazing. I do. I live in a really pretty part of Ontario. I live right on Lake Erie. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. Wow. Love it. What's your favorite book? Ooh, well, I just finished Becoming from, um, by our former first lady, mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Obama. I really love, love, love that book. I loved everything about how she wrote. I also like Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is Not an Apology. That's, okay. been an, that's been an incredible book. I've listened to that a couple of times. And right now, those are my two top of the list favorite books. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you have one more meal on earth before you are Ooh. no longer with us. What is your last meal on earth? Oh, my goodness. This is a big one. What, like some of my favorite food is like sushi. So Ooh. I probably would have Sushi, like okay. the most expensive high-end sushi. Wonderful, awesome. Yeah. What's a recipe that you cannot stop making in quarantine? So I make this uh, Mexican casserole. So mm. I got it out of a, a book, and it's like it's a rice base. It's almost like a deconstructed burrito bowl. And I do like spicy sausage. You can also do spicy tofu or whatever you eat. I eat everything. I'm an omnivore. So I do spicy sausage and then a layer of cheese. And then like I put a lot of spice in it and then I dump a bunch of sriracha on it. I'm also (laughs) a big fan of dumplings. Yeah. Dumplings. Asian food is just so good. Oh, yeah. There's no kind of Asian food that's not good. Korean Mm -hmm. barbecue. 
I'm a big pho person. I eat a lot of Vietnamese food. I eat a lot of Vietnamese food. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like like Thai food. There's no Asian food that I don't like. There's yeah. a new Cambodian sandwich shop between uh, Jackie and I. I like, haven't had Cambodian deli- food. I'm going to have that next. That's awesome. It's good. Yes. Nothing um, better than Asian food. What's your go-to music during quarantine? Do you have an album, a playlist? You know who I like? My, I have a favorite song, and I always put it on when I'm struggling in my run. It's Starships by Nicki Minaj. Like, I just play that song when I'm feeling down. No, she's a great Nikki. feminist. Yes, yes, I yes, know, yes. right? And then um, Savage, I love by Megan Thee Stallion. I've been Got playing it. a lot of that. So I love a lot of, I love a lot of 90s hip hop, a lot of 80s hip hop, because that was big when I was growing up. Um, so, yeah. and uh, Grandmaster Flash is from my oh, mother's village yes. in Barbados. Yeah, he's from really? my mom's village in Barbados. Wow, awesome. So Grandmaster Flash is Bayesian, like Rihanna. And then of awesome. course, it's my girl Rihanna, right? And then mm-hmm. Rihanna, then Riri too, yeah. Those Grandmaster Flash and Rihanna. You got you got some good cousins over there. I'm jealous. Sam. Yeah. <laughs> and the first woman who ran for president on the Democrat on the uh, Democratic ticket, Shirley Chisholm, is yes. also Asian. <gasps> also wow. Asian. Okay, yes. How did I forget that? I know, right? Ooh. Asians are like yeah, taking over, right? Asians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is that's your? Funny favorite lesson that you've learned during the pandemic either about yourself about the world it's a good lesson you learned a good lesson that i've learned is capitalism is a lie that uh, all these big companies are like filing for bankruptcy that they do need us that us little worker bees are what make the world go around um I've i think also- yoga works just file for chapter 11 yep yeah so yeah they did and so uh that, and again, the big lesson is that we're all in this together. I think what the pandemic has taught us is what particular um, populations are deeply affected disproportionately. So we know that Black Americans and, um, uh, and uh, Hispanic and Latino Americans are, are greatly affected by this. And, and all the problems with the world that, that we need to look after each other. That's the biggest lesson that I've learned. I wear my mask, I social distance, I make sure that I'm picking, that it's not just about me. And it's really shone a light, I think, on America, American uh, individualism and how it, it doesn't work. Like yeah. individualism mm-hmm. is not working because yeah. it's not. If, if no, people yeah, right. cared about each other, 200, over 200,000 people wouldn't be dead in America. Yeah, definitely. We have an individual, individualism problem for better yeah. or for worse. And an ethnocentric problem too. Like you don't yes. really look beyond your own backyard. And I think that's a big lesson for all of us to learn. Right. Ooh, look beyond on. your own backyard. Say that one more time for the people in the back, please. Yeah, Diane. it's time to look beyond your own backyard. We are really mm. all in this together. And I can't, like the pandemic has taught us that, right? Yeah, right. Definitely. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Spot on. How can we strengthen our yoga practice in quarantine? In quarantine, meditate, 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 meditate. I did that this morning. <laughs> Good job, me too. <laughs> Mine is coming after this. Oh, yes. I'm late. That's all right. Read your favorite yoga texts and books. Look for opportunities to share your practice with others. Um, and just do what you can. Even if you can just get like five minutes of joyful, mindful movement and five minutes of meditation, it will change your life. Like it will just mm. change your disposition. And just focus on on the things that, that that elevate your spirit and that can elevate others love it what was the last purchase that you made that really excited you my bike awesome <laughs> awesome spinderella i 
question. What are you going to be for Halloween? You know, I was thinking of quite possibly being one of the characters from Black Panther because that's Ooh. always my favorite. I haven't decided. Chadwick. Yeah, that broke my heart. I'm oh, just, yeah. I don't know what to do with that. I don't, my kids took it really, really hard. Um, oh, and yeah, I'm still sure. taking it really, Young really, boys. really hard. Oh. Yeah, really, really hard. So I think I might be Black Panther. I might actually, because in one of the comics, his sister's theory becomes Black Panther. So I yes. wonder if that's how they'll do it. So I think that's what I'll go out as. Either that or sometimes I always think I want to get into that Wonder Woman costume. Okay. Ooh. All right. Either way, you are a superhero. Exactly. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's what I want to be more than anything in the world is a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> to us, you are. Thank oh, you, Diane. You guys are so, so much. But thank wait. you, Alana. Thank you, Jacqueline. Don't sign off yet because we want oh. all the plugs. We want our listeners to keep up with you, buy your books, follow you, take classes. Give us all the plugs. Where you can we all find the you? Tea. you? All can find the tea. All of it. All the tea. You can find me at Diane. Bondyyoga.com. So that's lists everything I do and everywhere I am. I'm good. Part of the Insight uh, Timer Yoga launch. So that's coming up in the next couple of weeks where Insight Ooh. Timer is now doing yoga and we're offering free, free classes there. I have awesome. my own. Isn't that kind of fun? Yeah. I have my yeah. own channel, uh, yogaforeveryone.tv, where I offer accessible, equitable, adaptable yoga classes and body positive fitness for anybody who wants to just get some joyful, mindful movement. But you can find all of that on my website. And okay. check me out on social media, Diane Bondi Yoga Official. I'm pretty active on Instagram. I've recently become obsessed with TikTok, so I'm also doing that now. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I'm on you're Facebook. You're so hip. You are, you're trying. hipper than us. We're not on TikTok. Yeah. You are We're so hip so for, for that, my God. Son was on it, and I thought I should see what he's looking at, right? So yeah. I got on it, and then I'm like, "Oh, this is really fun!" And I follow a lot of indigenous creators, so I'm learning Ooh. all about indigenous history. Like, it's really I love TikTok. I gotta say, love it. We will drop links to all of this in the show notes. But again, Diane Bondi, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us today. Of course, it was my honor and my pleasure. You guys are so fun. And I I just, it's so great to talk about all these things and just be honest, right? And just tell the truth. Real, real real, real conversations about how we feel and how we show up in the world. So I appreciate these podcasts. So I thank you very much for inviting me. Totally. Well, yeah. guys, that's our show. We are the Black and Yellow Podcast. Keep up with us on Instagram at Black and Yellow Podcast, or you can chat with us individually. I am Alana Webster, but on the gram, they call me at Renegade of Fun. I am Jacqueline Chung Young on the gram. We're also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please rate, review, subscribe to keep this little baby going and growing. And we'll hear from you guys next time. Bye, guys. Love you. Take it easy. Bye. Happy Halloween. And go vote. Bye. Bye. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>